0: In order to support this show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And those potential advertisers need to learn a little bit more about you. So please support the pod by going to podsurvey.com slash food psych and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash food psych, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash F-O O D P S Y C H. Thanks so much for your help. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. And Hey there, welcome to episode 187 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Alyssa Sobo, a software engineer and the co-founder of Ample, which is a review website for rating doctors, services, and businesses on their accessibility for people in all kinds of marginalized bodies, including larger bodies, trans bodies, and many others. So Alyssa and I talked about how being fat shamed at the doctor's office inspired her to create the Ample app, why accessibility matters, her journey through disordered eating and recovery, how business reviews can actually function as a form of education and advocacy, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. It was a really good one. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener who gives their name as Older, who writes, Hi, Christy. I'm in my early 50s and have been on the intuitive eating learning journey for around three years. I've loved your podcast and have followed the work of your guests over time, have read books that I've learned about from Food Psych, and I'm conducting myself with newfound confidence and awareness of my right to respect myself and others Regardless of body size. I've read health at every size and intuitive eating and i'm a true believer But as an older person i'm getting pressure from my doctor to consider my quote-unquote health And eat low fat and lose some weight for my joints and health markers like my cholesterol and thyroid I'm, not asking for individual medical advice as I know you don't give it But is there any point in the health at every size methodology where the older person with a body that physically is carrying excess mass Has to think about losing weight My doctor says yes. Am I being a Pollyanna or ostrich with his head in the sand to think that this intuitive eating and haze stuff applies forever, even when we get older and get indications we may disable ourselves if we continue to ignore weight? My body may be wearing out because of my disregard for quote unquote the numbers. I'm constantly aware that being an intuitive eater in my 50s is different than it would have been in my 20s. Does my approach need to adapt at my age? I wish you'd had food psych when I was 20, but I think you are a toddler. Thank you so much for being there now. Can't wait. Your book. So, thanks so much to Older for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer as they rightly pointed out, that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, I am so glad you found your way to the anti-diet movement now. And I only wish that I could have been podcasting when I was a toddler or that podcasts even existed when I was a toddler because then you could have found me then and I could have helped people sooner. But I can absolutely understand you know, the fear and frustration that these talks from your doctor might have caused you. And I can tell that it's making you worry that the Hayes philosophy and intuitive eating aren't the responsible thing to do at your age. But rest assured, there is no age limit on haze and intuitive eating. And you absolutely do not need to lose weight for any medical reason. So for one thing, that's because we don't have any safe or effective way of getting human bodies to lose weight permanently. It's just not what they were designed to do. It's not what our bodies want, and they fight it at every turn. So that's why diets don't work in the long term. And by diets, I really mean any form of intentional weight loss. They're calling themselves a lot of things these days, right? Like lifestyle changes, protocols, programs, templates, plans, blah, blah, blah. But like whatever else diets are calling themselves these days, whatever guys diet culture. is going under, and that includes quote-unquote wellness, right, the wellness diet that I'm always talking about, whatever form it comes under, all forms of intentional weight loss almost inevitably lead to weight cycling, where some people can lose a significant amount of weight in the short term, like six months to a year, let's say, but then the vast majority of those people regain it all back within five years. So that minuscule fraction of people who don't regain it within that time, and we're talking like a single-digit percentage of folks here probably from what the research shows, those outliers often are just people who are using disordered behaviors that would be diagnosed as some form of anorexia and people who had started out in smaller bodies. And so they might just be people with what's called, quote, unquote, atypical anorexia nervosa, which we talked about in episode 178, where they started out at the higher end of the body mass index spectrum, and they've restricted themselves down into the, quote, unquote, normal BMI category. But, of course, they've done it through disordered means that take over their lives. And the only reason that they get praise for those behaviors instead of getting diagnosed with anorexia and getting help immediately, right, getting taken to the nearest treatment center is because of diet culture and because of the stigma that it places on larger bodies and the way that it elevates smaller bodies. And so those quote-unquote successful dieters are often just people who have seriously disordered eating and are suffering because of it, and they're, again, a very small percentage of all the dieters out there. So the more typical path of dieters is either never to lose any significant amount of weight as hard as they try, which is definitely true for a lot of people, or to lose a significant amount of weight over a period of months or a year or so, but then to gain it all back within five years. And I want to emphasize first that weight is not a health problem or even an indicator of health, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being at a higher weight. But also, intentional weight loss not only causes people to regain all the weight they lost, but it also causes them to regain more in many cases, in fact, likely most cases. So it drives weight up over time. Up to two-thirds of people who Intentionally lose weight, regain even more than they lost. They gain it all back plus a dividend. So, either way, whatever happens to people's weights when they weight cycle, the almost inevitable cycles of weight loss and regain that people go through on diets or quote unquote lifestyle changes or whatever you want to call them actually increase their risk of health problems that typically get blamed on weight itself, like heart disease, diabetes, and their associated risk factors like cholesterol. And this is all independent of people's actual weight and is just from the weight cycling. And you know what else raises your risk of those health conditions independent of weight itself? That would be weight stigma, aka being shamed and blamed for your body size, which is what the person who asked the question is actually experiencing at the doctor. So research shows that doctors are the number one source of weight stigma for women and the number two source for men. Of all the sources of weight stigma out there, doctors are number one and number two. And we don't have research on non-binary folks at this point, but I would imagine that it's very much the same for them. So basically, you know, everyone is having a huge amount of weight stigma. The people who feel weight stigma from somewhere in their lives are most likely to feel it from their doctors, And that stigma from doctors can take the form of very seemingly innocent comments like saying that you need to lose weight, quote unquote, for your health and implying that your body is wrong the way it is, which is what a recommendation for weight loss does, and also prescribing to go on diets to shrink your body. So incidents of weight stigma have actually been shown to cause stress in the body, like there's measurable increases in people's cortisol levels with weight stigma, and weight stigma has also been found to be a greater risk to your health than what you eat, which is mind-blowing, right? That That's huge, and that really should give a lot of dietitians and public health officials pause because when they offer nutrition advice with a side of weight stigma, which is what most nutrition advice in diet culture is... It totally cancels out any benefit that the nutrition info itself might have had, and it causes net harm to people's health. And by the way, if you want to see the science behind all this stuff I'm sharing right now, you can download my slides from the 2018 Fancy Conference for Dietitians, which has a very robust list of citations that back up everything I'm saying here. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash 2018 to get it. That's christyharrison.com FNCE2018. And just a mild trigger warning for those slides, because there's one weight number that I used, which is just meant to show what a ridiculously small amount of weight people have been shown to lose, even in the most optimistic diet studies. So in short, the research really shows that recommending weight loss just is not evidence-based healthcare. So you're definitely not being an ostrich or Pollyanna, the person who asked the question. It's actually diet culture and the medical professionals who are stuck in diet culture that are the real ostriches and Pollyannas because they ignore the decades of good scientific evidence telling us that we just don't have a safe, effective, or permanent way to shrink people's bodies and that attempts to do that are actually far riskier to people's health than just staying at the same higher weight without experiencing weight cycling or weight stigma. And, of course, that has a lot to do with the strength of diet culture and the diet industry, right, that people are just burying their heads in the sand and refusing to acknowledge this evidence that says, like, hey, we need to do things another way. So you can get some help for your health. You can have good health care and get help for conditions like cholesterol and thyroid and everything else that might be coming up as you age that doesn't involve weight stigma or unsound diet advice. And that entails finding a haze aligned medical team or at least a medical team that's willing to learn about health at every size and take weight loss and diet advice off the table for you, if not for every patient they treat. So I would definitely recommend finding a different doctor who's not going to weight shame you. And you can start by looking in the provider directory at haescommunity.com. That's H-A-E-S community.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode as well. And then if you can't find anyone in your area in that directory, you can try looking in your insurance directory, for example, or just looking in the, the ph- I was about to say the phone book, that's dating me, looking online on the internets and um, then cross-referencing the providers you find there with the doctor reviews on Ample, which is the app that I'm gonna talk about with our guest, Alyssa Sobo in just a minute, which is isitample.com, I-S-I-T-A-M-P-L-E.com. And we'll link to that in the show notes too, of course, for this episode. And you can also just call up different doctors off and talk to their staff until you find a practice that says they'd be willing to work with you on your health without recommending weight loss or dieting. And then when you do go be armed with some guidelines, you know, some ideas of things to say to them to help set the boundaries and shut down any potential weight talk that might come up. Reagan Chastain has a really good guide for what to say at the doctor's office, which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode. One of the things she always says is like, what would you tell a thin person with the same condition? What would you prescribe to a thin person in this situation? What evidence-based medicine would you give to them that you're not giving to a larger bodied person? And so that's one easy way to sort of deflect and get the doctor back on track and deflect the weight loss advice. But hopefully, if you've gone through the process of like interviewing the doctor's offices before you even get there and kind of set the tone, you could even like write them an email ahead of time and be like, this is what I want to work on with the doctor. This, these are my sort of ground rules. And then print that out and bring it with you and like remind them, hey, your staff agreed to this when I booked this appointment that can be really helpful too. And hopefully you won't even necessarily have to go through the process of setting the boundaries. And make sure that, you know, the rest of the staff is on the same page when you do go to the doctor. Like, the doctor themselves might be totally cool with, you know, trying a health at every size approach for you, but maybe one of the nurses is really wedded to weight and weight loss. And is like, wait, what do you mean? You don't want to step on the scale. You have to, and like gives you guff about it, you know, but you can say actually, no, thank you. I don't do scales. And if you need to write something in my chart for insurance purposes, you can just write down refused. And that's actually their lingo. That's like insider lingo that, nurses and doctors use in the charts where, you know, if you don't want to give your weight, they can actually say refused and then they don't have to get that number for their insurance purposes. So I hope that helps. And again, you know, just to summarize, health at every size and intuitive eating are absolutely for everyone at every age. And it sounds like you just need to find a treatment team that's on board with health at every size and intuitive eating rather than this doctor who seems really opposed to it and is very rooted in diet culture and is just giving you the diet culture line about what you need to do, quote unquote, for your health, which is complete bullshit, right? Dieting doesn't work. Any form of intentional weight loss has a terrible track record long term and makes your health worse in the long run. So we need a better way and there is a better way and it's health at every size and intuitive eating. So to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me and my team answer it much more quickly, you can come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. We have a wealth of audio and written content teaching you all the principles of intuitive eating, plus an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given already to other participants so that you can work through all the different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. When you join the course, you also get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with other course participants from around the world and you get real-time guidance from me and my team as well. So you get a lot of great support both individually and from the community in this course. A participant named Elizabeth wrote to me and said, I've recently been socializing in ways that I didn't when I was in the midst of my chronic dieting and eating disorder. Thanks for your help in getting me to this point through the course. And another participant named Pearl said, Thank you so much for this course. It has saved my life. And thank you for your continued guidance. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. And now is a really good time to sign up, by the way, because I'm getting ready to do a big update of the course in the spring. And so you're going to be getting the course right now at the lowest price it will be available for. And you're also going to be getting free access and instant access to the update as soon as it's ready. So it's kind of like getting two courses for the price of one, plus it's also like light- lifetime access. So again, christyharrison.com slash course is the place to go to sign up. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Nurex. Imagine if you could chat with doctors anytime from your phone, get prescribed online, and get birth control delivered straight to your door every month with automatic refills, and do it all without ever having to leave the house. Enter Nurex, the game-changing company that's here to make getting birth control easier. Nurex means paying for fewer doctor visits, skipping pharmacy lines, and no more forgetting to pick up your refill every month. Plus, if you don't have insurance, it's the most affordable option out there. And if you do have insurance, it could be completely free. Just go to their website or their app and answer a few health questions for their certified doctors. They carry over 50 brands of birth control, so you can choose your go to, or their medical team will help you find the best option for you. And it's all safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant. Go to slash food psych for a $20 credit and get birth control at your doorstep in less than a week. That's slash F O O D P S Y C H. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Alyssa Sobo. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up.
1: So the first time that I became aware of my body was in kindergarten. I remember the teacher kind of marched us all over to the nurse's office, and we all were weighed for some reason, and when we came back to the kindergarten classroom, she wanted to use this as like an exercise in numbers, I suppose, so she put up a bunch of weights of the kids on the board of the classroom and she didn't put anybody's name, but she ranked them in order of biggest to smallest. And I knew that my weight was the biggest of the classroom. And so I think that was the first time I became aware that I was larger than other kids. And looking back on that now, it's, it was, you know, within, well within the range of normal, kid weight variation. But I think I always think of that as the first seed that got implanted in my mind that something wasn't right, that I was bigger than other kids. I knew I shouldn't be bigger than other kids, but I was. And so that was kind of like my first exposure to thinking about my body. And it just spiraled down from there from kindergarten.
0: Wow. And so did you, had you internalized sort of the idea that bigger bodies are less valuable from diet culture or like already by that point, do you think? Or how did that message sort of get communicated?
1: I can't remember the moment I had that message internalized, but I knew that when I saw that number, that wasn't right. And I also had a lot of thoughts about gender too. Like I remember thinking, I'm a girl, so I should definitely not be as heavy, heavier than the boys. And so it's interesting that even even at you know five or six, I I knew both that I shouldn't be bigger than other people, and I also knew that I'm a girl and I shouldn't be bigger than boys. And it was already in there at age five, and I don't know don't know how it got in there.
0: Oh, that is just wild, and it's it's so disturbing to think about that, you know, that kids that young are internalizing these messages. And then, of course, it goes on to shape your relationship with your body and food for years to come, right?
1: Yeah. So after that time, I think I remember at, in around first or second of grade, or maybe even then, somehow my primary care, like, family physician got involved. And I don't know if it was brought up first to him by my mom or if he brought it up to my mom or what exactly happened, but... I remember the kind of the medicalization beginning then, like, oh, she is a little bit bigger than other kids. And, you know, we've got to do something about this, even from that young age. And it was the fat free decade of the 90s. So I never recall having food that wasn't diet food in the house. So I I have no memory of having regular food in the house everything was was diet food from, from the get-go. And my mom was a thin-bodied woman and my dad was a larger man who constantly struggled with that. And so it was a weird culture in the household. It definitely felt like I was kind of, I was a problem and a lot of this was being done for me. And so by the time I got to eight years old, I was sent to fat kids camp for the Ooh. first time. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. You know you know the story is, is not going well when the eight-year-old gets sent to fat kids camp. <laughs> oh but, I know. <laughs>
0: but,
1: but so I was the youngest kid at that camp and it was taught it was given at UCSD, like a college campus in San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. It was given in the fanciest part of San Diego. And I think Uh, a lot of the problems got worse at the fat kids camp with my body image and my relationship to food. There was, I remember a lot of nutrition classes, a lot of like, remember the number of calories in each of these food items. So I was doing that already at the age of eight. And there was a few traumatic events that took place at the fat kids camp. The, The worst of which is a story that I tell. So on the campus of the university, there was also another camp. The two camps were kind of coexisting on this campus. And the other camp was a tennis camp, a kid's tennis camp. Oh. And so it was, like, <laughs> it was like the ritziest part of San Diego. And there was this kid's tennis camp. And I remember kind of walking through the campus with a small group of the other people at the fat camp. And we kind of across the road, because, you know, the roads cut through the campus, a group of the tennis camps kids were walking by and they, they were carrying a pizza And they started taunting us like, oh, the kids at the fat kids camp can't have this pizza and you guys are too fat to eat pizza. And so it was just kind of, it was kind of a hotbed of shame, I think it ended up being. And I still went to fat kids camp one more year when I was nine and, you know, not good.
0: I bet. It sounds like you got a lot of, I mean, that bullying from the other kids sounds horrible. Yeah. And I'm sure you were probably being told a lot of disordered things at the camp too, about like what to do with food and stuff.
1: Yeah, very much so. And I remember just, there was like punishing workouts at the camp. And I, I remember kind of being on my back, doing these crunches thinking, oh, this sucks. (laughs) Like, and so, you know, I feel like that was also the first kernels of what ended up becoming an exercise addiction for me too, because I was taught then that exercise was kind of a punishment for my body and that it was going to be painful and hurt. And it was interesting that there was this tennis camp also on the campus now that I'm thinking about it, because those kids were there to have fun and to play. And I I remember looking into the tennis courts and seeing a very playful and fun camp going on, whereas ours was
0: not. That's so sad. Yeah, it took the joy out of movement from such a young age.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I guess the moral is don't send your kids to Patkins Camp no oh, matter
0: what no matter please. what you do <laughs> seriously i think those things should not exist anymore i think it's I really so unethical to do that to kids
1: i know i've fantasized about writing the director a letter because of course i know the director's name and i've i've looked her up and i've fantasized about sending her a letter to explain it but i just i don't know i never go through with it because i feel like this woman clearly doesn't get it and to think of how many, I I, I also fantasize about reuniting with the people who are at that camp somehow, and like getting together and seeing where everyone's at, and like maybe having like a joyous love camp in place of like the fat kids camp
0: that we all had. Mm, that would be so <laughs> nice that's a that's I actually I feel like that would be a really good like documentary or something you know oh that would be that's a good idea yeah, yeah. someone out there who has the time and the the skills to do that yeah absolutely <laughs> and maybe to uh for the new camp you could go to you could go to Virgie Tovar's oh yeah Camp Thunder Like totally <laughs> that would
1: be a perfect replacement and I love Virgie she's a friend oh, no. of the friend of the app so like that would be a great idea <laughs> totally
0: she's a friend of the show too she's actually yeah. um as we're recording this i think she's, her episode's going to be out like a week later her, her oh, third nice. appearance on the podcast oh so. man yeah. yeah so exciting but yeah so getting back to like your story and your journey yeah. how it all unfolded what did that do to your relationship with food and your body then to be at that camp
1: i think i uh, i mean i can only think of it as a Total, total destroying of my relationship with food and my body. I never recall liking my body or or even being embodied. I always kind of envisioned myself as kind of separate from my body because from such a young age, I was kind of separated from my body in that sense. And so with food, I began pretty disordered eating from the get-go. I think by the time I was in middle school, I had probably what would be considered a full-blown exercise addiction. and then by the time I started high school, I had uh, pretty pretty severe problems with starving or anorexia and, and stuff like that. And so a weird thing that kind of also came out of it in relationship to my to eating is that I also kind of started cooking for myself at a really young age, a, a really oddly young age. and I can remember like biking to the store and getting ingredients. For food and bringing them back. And the focus was always like, these are the healthy recipes that the camp sent home that you should be cooking. And so I very much started cooking at a young age, I think too. So there was this two track thing going on where my love of cooking was developing really strongly, but also my feeling that I couldn't be eating the food or I shouldn't be eating the food was also developing. So it was, it was a real tortured place to be in, I think, of being really tortured between those two feelings.
0: Yeah, that sounds really painful.
1: Yeah, it was. And so, so, you know, in high school, I continued to struggle with restriction, severe restriction and and exercise problems. And even into college, sadly, I, I feel like I was one of the few college freshmen who brought with them this like strict eating regime and exercise regime. And I remember in my freshman year in between my calculus class and my fly fishing class, because I went to a school that was like in the wild. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I remember running laps in between that and, and just thinking, huh, no one else is out here doing this, but here I am running laps still because I need, I need to be thin. I need to be thinner. And I brought a lot of weird eating patterns with me. Like I brought my food dehydrator to college and I would go to the campus cafeteria thing and I would use my little points and buy things from the produce bar and take them back to my room and dehydrate them to eat. Because <laughs> I was a, a raw foodist. Oh so, wow! So and this was back a long time ago.
0: So this was when that was trendy, right? Like this was before.
1: That. Like this was before that was
0: trendy. I oh, feel like interesting.
1: Yeah, it was right on the cusp, or maybe it was the beginning of its trendiness. And and for some reason, I really latched onto it. And really went with it even into college, and still to this day, I have a friend I met in college who says his strongest memory of me in freshman years the smell of strawberries like wafting out my dorm room down the hall. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so I had a lot of a lot of problems with food and eating growing up that were really entrenched, like deeply entrenched into my identity.
0: And that's interesting that you got into the raw food thing because, as I'm always highlighting on this podcast the wellness diet is this sort of new modern guise of diet culture that pretends to be all about wellness. And I think raw foodism like fits right into that. It's like, oh, it's health and wellness and has no science behind it. And there's no no good support for like not cooking your food. Actually cooked food is much more delicious and more nourishing in a lot of ways, depending on the vitamin you're talking about.
1: Right. It's more (laughs) bioavailable if you cook it. Yeah. Yeah. So strange. I, I... I don't know why I got into those things. I think I kind of just got into all of them. I was trying desperately to find something that would work. And obviously, the fact that I was still on a diet in college meant that all of my previous attempts had not been successful. And of course, I blame that on myself. and, And now I know that I was never going to be successful at that.
0: Yeah, totally. It always was destined to fail diets. Diets fail us all the time, and yet we're so conditioned to beat ourselves up about it and blame ourselves when it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, it's amazing that I didn't realize it before and that I kept blaming myself despite knowing that I was the best dieter that I knew. You know, I still continued to blame any failures at it on myself and I think for me, I think of the pinnacle of everything as my wedding, because, you know, maybe as as you know, like the wedding industrial complex and the pressure on women to be these beautiful thin prizes for their men that they're marrying is so strong. I remember not I didn't want a wedding, but my husband really did. He wanted our all our friends to come and I wanted to elope because I think I knew what would happen is I knew that I would become. Obsessed with the wedding date and obsessed with with becoming as small as possible. And, but I think, you know, I eventually gave in because I, I wanted him to have the wedding that he wanted. And, and I began what was probably my most extreme and rigid dieting to date at that point. And I got really into the high intensity exercise, which is an exercise addict's dream come true type of exercise, I feel like, and not eat very much. And, I remember eventually after the wedding, I I recall having this first thought like, geez, I've spent my whole life trying to be thin and it's all I ever do at times. Like it's a full-time job, all of this dieting and obsession and it dominates every moment almost of my life is thoughts about my body and obsessive thoughts about restriction. And this seems weird, like, other people don't do this. Other thin people don't do this. My husband doesn't do this. He's thin, thin bodied. And why, why am I doing this kind of? And I was looking online and I think I was actually looking on Amazon for yet another diet related book. And somehow I I stumbled upon Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon.
0: Yeah. That's some good algorithms that are, like, <laughs> yeah. brought that to yeah. you. I know. It, the gods smiled upon
1: me in that mm-hmm. moment or the goddesses because, <laughs> because yeah, her book showed up or their book showed up, I should say. And I remember reading the cover like on the Amazon preview. And, it, and I think on the cover, it very much says, you know, like diets fail us and you can be healthy at whatever size. You don't have to have a diet. And on the front of that book, there's like a scale in the trash can. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, whoa, I don't know. Uh, you know like, it, I was like intrigued, but I was also very terrified at the thought because I very much, when you have kind of an addiction to something like an addiction to exercise or, or you have an eating disorder, it's like, I, I don't know for sure how other people might feel, but I certainly felt like it's, you know, it's your form of control it's what you hold on to and this book was just sitting there looking at me on the screen saying that everything i knew might have been wrong and so i i ordered the book
0: <laughs> <laughs> like hate ordered or something yeah. it's like like what is this book i got to see for myself yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it was like it was like i knew something just rang true to me even from the cover of the book like it rang true to my experience, and so I I I hate ordered the book and I took it with me on my honeymoon. <laughs> oh
0: wow! Did you discover the book before or after your wedding?
1: I discovered it I think right after because right after the wedding I was like, well, uh, now I'm done with the wedding. I, do I have to keep doing this? Like, do I have to keep punishing myself every day with these grueling exercises and not eating, not you know, not going out and having a drink with my friends and all of these the most extreme kind of punishing behaviors that I was doing. And once the wedding was over, I was like, wait, uh, okay, now what? Like I had a goal and now do I just have to keep doing this? And so I, yeah, the book, I stumbled across the book right, right after the wedding. And so we, I took it with me and we part of our honeymoon was to this like hot springs and you know, you cook at at the hot spring, you cook, cook food for yourself in this commercial kitchen and it's, it's very like lo-fi situation. And I remember thinking, like I read the book and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to go into the kitchen and I'm going to, for the first time in my entire life, cook a meal and eat it. And I'm going to try this like intuitive eating thing. Like I'm going to just try to see what that feels like to eat food like that. And I still remember like what it was that I ate and just having that revolutionary experience of not hate like not hating myself while I was eating the food wow
0: that's huge that's so powerful because it sounds like you didn't really have much of a memory of that if at all from childhood like of Um, having your intuitive relationship with food that you were born with so
1: yeah absolutely it was my intuitive relationship was completely destroyed from birth or from shortly after birth I don't know and so um, I remember like reading passages of this book. I just, I couldn't believe this book. And I was just reading passages out to my husband on the honeymoon. He was like, yeah, that that really does sound like your experience or, or something. And we were both just having like this revelatory experience with that book. And after that, I definitely still had some backslides into eating disordered behavior. But I think that that was getting me on the right path ultimately.
0: That's awesome. It sounds like you were really ready to be done with it too, like you started to question for yourself like where does this fit into my life and why am I still having to do this? Cuz yeah, diets promise you just do this diet for like however many days or months or whatever and then Like you're cured and there's like a quote unquote maintenance phase or whatever, but it's supposed to be, I feel like most of them make it out to be like long-term, you won't have to be this restrictive. You only have to be like super restrictive in the beginning, but then actually you're still, you're still restricting. You're still sort of thinking in the mindset of the diet long-term. And if you don't, you know, the, the sort of promise that they hold out to you evaporates because- Again, I mean, and most people's bodies fight it anyway even if they are still doing the the dieting yes. behaviors, you know? Like your body just has other plans. And so, you know, that yeah. promise of of like, you know, just lose the weight and then you'll maintain it forever is just bullshit.
1: It is. I mean, the the moment I stopped doing the most extreme version of the dieting was the moment that the weight, you know, immediately came back and It's amazing to think of how short of a period the weight would always come back. And it's boggling to think that anyone could suggest you could just stop dieting because that certainly was never true for myself. Anytime I wasn't doing the most extreme behavior of the dieting, the weight would come back and fairly quickly. Right.
0: And how are you relating to your body at that point then? Because I know for most people, I think accepting weight gain, accepting that your weight might be larger than the cultural ideal or you know, significantly larger than the cultural ideal is a really hard part of this process, right?
1: It was very difficult for me. I think I had internalized a huge amount of fat phobia in my own being a fat person or being a larger bodied person trying to diet. I think possibly sometimes those are the people who experience and internalize the most fat phobias. I didn't have a fat friend. I didn't. I didn't have a fat friend. Like I didn't even know a person in a larger body. And um, I think that I just. I really struggled with it going forward. And a lot of the community I was in was very a um, health focused kind of granola community. And so I really struggled for a long time. And I credit having having a partner who like a a big part of it was also that I got pregnant and I knew that I didn't want to diet while I was pregnant because I thought that that could be harmful to the child or I felt that that would be harmful to the child. And so that was kind of when I first started to really not diet. And I luckily I had a partner who was really supportive of that. And we had been together since college. So this was the first time he was seeing me like eat normally and and not worry. And so he was really supportive of that. And eventually I found fat friends. It took some time. It took moving to Portland, Oregon <laughs> to do that. And yeah, it was a really long journey for me. And I backslid a lot of times, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Cause I think when you're in that sort of milieu and that like community that is so healthist, and I definitely know like California in general and and pockets of it like San Diego are are definitely you know it's like the beach and like surfer ideal or whatever
1: it was San Diego was a huge part of the problem for me I, I hate to admit it no offense to any listeners from San Diego but it was I felt very I felt very not mainstream and not with that culture and like I was never going to be that beach babe. And so eventually I did move away from San Diego and and that did help me a lot. But yeah.
0: I feel like, yeah, environment does actually have a huge effect. Like obviously to a certain extent, wherever you go, there you are and like your internalized beliefs are still something to work on. But yeah, when you're in an environment like that, that just pushes on it. And was the environment also that you sort of like that those internalized beliefs emerged in the first place. I can imagine how hard it would be to break away. And like when you don't have anyone else in your community who's like fat positive.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so a big part of the one of the one of the reasons I wanted to move to Portland was that I heard tell that Portland had a had a great fat community. Mm-hmm. And I had read that and I was like, well, we'd already wanted to move to Portland, but I was like, let's definitely go there. I feel like I can make some fat friends there. And and I it was it did. I did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like having friends who get it is so huge, and specifically having—I've heard from a number of other fat folks who identify as fat that you know say like having fat friends was a a life-changing thing for them to like have other people model acceptance of their bodies in larger bodies, you know, and sort of mirror to them like no, you can actually be fat and embrace your body, and it's okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just seeing that, I almost. You know, I think what fat phobia does is it tries to strip away the humanity of fat people, and so just being around fat people who ha- who were so full of life and wonderful and it really shifted the perspective for me a lot. That's awesome,
0: yeah, I think one of the things that I really like about this podcast too, is that like, you know, talking to people, I mean, I didn't know this at the outset that it was going to go in this direction, but I feel like the format of just like talking to people about their relationship with food and their experience gives a glimpse into someone's humanity. Yeah, And you're hearing the humanity of all these diverse people. That's not something that we really get for a lot of people in like diverse identities, but Especially for fat people in diet culture, like that doesn't really happen. You know, you get this sort of one narrative or a few little different twists on the narrative of how a fat person's supposed to be from TV and movies and pop culture that just, you know, erases completely all the depths and nuance of people's humanity.
1: That's true. I do recall TV and just the characterization of fat people as the butt of all jokes was absolutely instrumental in me thinking I I can't be that person and I'm not gonna be that person. I'm gonna change it. This is I'm just a thin person who happens to be momentarily trapped in this thicker body. Like
0: confused you know so well right and that's the narrative that that gets sold us too right that's like Oprah's thing of like yeah and and she got it from somewhere too it's this yeah like there's a thin person inside you waiting to get out like no that is not true
1: (laughs) no no it it was clear to me I was a bigger person and I was always now it's clear to me I was a bigger person I was always going to be a bigger person and that's just that Mm -hmm. you
0: know (laughs) <laughs> yeah. When did you start to really feel that way? When did that that idea start to sink in for you?
1: Not until the whole acceptance part came in. It really took me a long time to also a part of it, I think, is I'm a very type A personality. I I really feel that I need to really ma- you know master and, and be the best at the things I do. And that's another thing, another obnoxious piece of American culture that has sunk into me, but I really thought that this was like the last thing that I couldn't do. I I could be the best at chemistry and I could become a software engineer and I could do all these things. And like, I just had to crush this last piece. And I think it was finally just for me, all of the acceptance came in bits and pieces. Like it was starting to follow more, more Instagram people who were fat and proud And then it was reading books. Like I remember reading Virgie Tovar's book, and uh, Hot and Heavy. And (laughs) I remember reading someone who was, they were describing how much they love, they were like on the beach and it was, it was very sensuous scene and they were touching their bodies and they were feeling and loving these roles that they had. And I was just thinking like, what? (laughs) <laughs> like I, did, I, I, I was I was really incredulous for a long time. Like I, I knew it was true, but I I remained incredulous that it was possible to be happy in your skin. And I, you know, I have to admit that for me, it's just a long, it's just a long and tortured journey. I don't think, I don't think that anybody who spent their entire life being totally surrounded by diet culture, embraced diet culture, felt that diet culture was part of their very identity. It's not something that's going to go completely to zero in just two or three years.
0: You know, it's going to be a long journey. Yeah, that's so important to share, too. I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of people when they come to this this movement, however they discover it, you know, people who co- who discover the podcast or find me on social media or whatever and are like, I'm into it. I love this. I'm embracing it. But like, how long is it going to take, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's so different for everyone that it's really impossible to say. And also even trying to say like, well, this is how long it'll take in general probably excludes the people for, for whom that's a different experience. But I think it's just, yeah, really valuable for you to say like, because you were in it for so long for your pretty much entire like life that you are conscious of, that's going to take a long time to fully untangle. And of course, we're still in it. You're still having to live in diet culture, even though you have now this community that does buffer you, but still there's instances where you're going to have to face it. And so what do you do with that? Like learning to navigate that is such a process too.
1: Right. And I think it's, at first I thought that acceptance of my body was going to look like, you know, say it looks like someone well-known on Instagram. It's going to be naked photos and all of these things. But In the end, it it doesn't. It looks like my own thing. It looks like my own form of acceptance and and the different ways that I think about it, which, you know, might be influenced by kind of Buddhist teachings or it it just becomes influenced by my own perception. And so I think it's important not to think like, oh, oh, body acceptance looks like this. And then forevermore, you're going to be saying and doing these types of things. It's
0: it's an individualized journey and it's just going to look the
1: way that it's going to look, you know. Yeah,
0: that's so important, too, because it, it, it's about, like, who you are as a person. And so whoever you are, like, you know, for anyone listening, it's like it's going to be about the emergence of who you really are as a person defining what your body acceptance looks like. And I've definitely had people, I've heard people say, like, am I not doing body acceptance right because I don't want to post naked photos? Like, do I still have yeah. some, like, internalized fat phobia or shame that I'm working through? And I feel like, I mean maybe we all have some like internalized stuff about sexuality and nude bodies and stuff from living in this culture that we live in from Western culture but also like you might just not be a person who's comfortable with that you might be a more private person you know and that's okay too.
1: Absolutely it's it's funny because so I met you at the ASDA conference
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I also met Shug McDaniel Do you mm. know Shuglet. Totally. <laughs> and, yeah. And Shugla is awesome. And they're totally, you know, a beloved part of, I think, fat, fat acceptance. And, um, but we ended up becoming super good friends after that conference. And they stayed with me in Portland for a couple of weeks and we became really good friends. And then, and then we wanted to take, They were always like, when are you going to get in front of the camera, Alyssa? When are you going to? And I I kept on being like, no, that's, you know, that's that's really not my thing because, you know, I don't. I am the person you described. I don't have a really strong propensity to to do that. I love that other people do it. And I'm so thankful that other people do that. And I think it's a great form of activism. But it just wasn't really me. And then finally, we, we wanted to take a vacation together. So we planned this trip to Joshua Tree to meet up over... Thanksgiving weekend. And finally they were like, okay, like you're the only fat person around I'm in nature. I have to take photos of fat people. Like that's my art. You gotta, I mean, they weren't going to really like force me obviously to do it, but they're just like, this is, this is it. Like we, we got to do this. And so finally I was like, okay. And, and once I did do it, it was a pretty amazing experience for me. And it, it really showed me things about my body that it, it reframed the way that I looked at my body. So it, it is a powerful experience to do that. But yeah, it's not necessary if if someone feels that it's not for them.
0: Right. And yeah, it could take time to to get there or maybe not at all for some people. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, however it works is cool, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm so curious, too, like when you talked about your pregnancy and how that was kind of like a gateway into starting to eat more intuitively on like a consistent basis and the experience of that starting to heal your relationship with food in that way. But then I know you said, too, that you had been fat shamed at the doctor while you're pregnant, and that was part of what inspired you to go in this activist direction with Ample. So I'm curious how those two things coexisted and how that informed your journey.
1: Yeah. I, so I started, I just was dipping my toe into non-dieting with my first child and I was into it and I was like, okay, this, this is good. Like, this is the right thing to be doing. And, and then I I had another kid shortly thereafter, the first kid, I had them really close together. And I went, um, my second trip to the doctor that was the first time I had really had a terrible experience at the doctor. The reality is that if you're a a good fatty going to the doctor, then you'll probably have a lot less trouble because, you know, if you can say, oh, well, I'm already dieting and exercising. Most doctors are like, great, keep that up, you know? So I, I went into the doctor and it was a situation where there was multiple doctors who were going to be who could possibly deliver your child. So you had to see all of the doctors for your prenatal care. And it was the first time seeing this one particular woman. And she walked in and said hello. And she kind of looked down at the chart and just looked back up at me and said, you know, you've gained X amount of weight since since you got pregnant. And it just immediately like caught me off guard oh, seriously. And I was just, I think I just kind of started stammering and said, oh, well, yeah, uh, okay, you know, and she was like, well, I would stop that if I were
0: you right away. And I was just like, uh, okay, like, what? I, like, as though you can, I mean, you're pregnant, yeah, like your body needs <laughs> that. What? Yeah. Wow. And I think that my body, you know, after having been starving
1: for so many years, I think my body with pregnancy was like, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Like, I'm, I am gonna make you bigger because." you've been starving in the past. So um, she kind of started walking me through all these questions, like, well, you probably eat the scraps off your one year old's plate, what? like in that accusatory tone. And I was oh. like, it was it was bad. I was, I was like, well, I mean, no, and th- the truth of the matter is I hate food waste. So like, <laughs> yeah, I sometimes do that as all parents, I think oh, yeah do that like that's a parent thing. Every parent does that. But, you know, I was like, no, no, I don't do that. And um, she was like, oh, you probably never exercise because you have a one-year-old who you're watching too. And, you know, and I shouldn't have to be answering these questions. I should have, you know, I wished I would have just gotten up and walked out, said, screw you. But, you know, I found myself saying, oh, well, I I go to a prenatal workout class and, you know, like desperately trying to, prove my humanity to this person uh, who was not treating me like a human. And after that experience, I went home and it was really, it was really jarring and it really rattled me. But I think at that point it was just something that I knew that I wasn't going to diet because for me, the the moment that I had kids, I realized, okay, you got to get serious about this because children see everything. And you can't just say to your kid, oh, love your body. You you kind of got to model that for them. And I knew I was, ma- again, mad. Like I knew that I, I knew that was true. I knew I was really going to have to love my body. And I was like, well, I've got about three years till they probably start realizing, okay, I've got to really get serious about this. But it was that experience. And then of course I was, at the time I was living in a really small town and I my reaction was, I I got to find another doctor. And so I I went online and I asked one person who I thought might know and of course nothing because rural healthcare is bad as it is bad as it is and I was of course wasn't going to be able to find another doctor. And it got me thinking and looking at online resources and what existed for finding doctors and there were a few kind of budding resources or, or they were really geographically centered. Like there was a list for, you know, one area, but not another. And some of them were out of date. And I thought, Hmm, I think I can fix this. Like, I think I can use software and kind of up to date technologies to solve this problem and make it easier for us to all share this information. That's awesome.
0: What had you been doing in terms of software development up to that point? Were you working for like a larger company or were you already working for yourself or? This
1: is interesting. So um, I am a self-taught programmer. I started teaching myself how to code like five or six years ago. And I live, my husband's a software engineer. So I had kind of a built-in mentor, but at that point I had done a kind of a lot of wacky things. I got an degree in chemistry, but didn't realize I didn't want to be stuck in a lab all day. I started a restaurant and ran a restaurant for a number of years and sold it. And then I was like teaching cooking and science and gardening in classrooms. And when I had my first kid, I was like For me, I said, I need to go back to work. Like, I definitely don't want to be home with these kids because that's the hardest job in the world. And I have so much respect for people who make that decision. It really is the hardest job and very underappreciated. But for me, I knew as a personal decision that I didn't want to stay home. So I started to learn to code. And I had just kind of finished a program, and I thought, I want my project to be this. I think I can build this thing. And I knew Virgie Tovar. And so I, I emailed Virgie and I was like, hey, I've, I've got this idea. Like, what do you think? And she was like, I love it. I think, but I think it shouldn't just be healthcare. I think we need to build this tool to review all types of things because I don't want to go to a hairdresser and sit down and have the hairdresser start talking to me about how to cut my hair to frame my face, my fat face in a more attractive way, you know? I want someone to just give me a good haircut. So we kind of think about how we could expand the idea to include pretty much everything. And to this day on Ample, you can pretty much review everything.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. I love that that exists because it is like when you think about moving through space in any sort of marginalized body, there's different nuances to that, that most people who design spaces don't really think about. And so to be able to find healthcare providers, but also a theater that has seats that are wide enough and has gender neutral bathrooms or whatever, like that stuff is meaningful to people.
1: Yeah, it really is. There's a number of things that you don't realize matter, like arms on chairs at restaurants or aisle width. Or another thing that's common is toilets that are mounted to the wall instead of the ground. People who are really large don't like sitting on wall-mounted toilets because it's scary that they it, they could fall off and they're not often rated for higher weight. And so that's a common thing. But that's something that even, you know, I I am a smaller fat person, and I have that privilege of being a smaller fat person. And that's something that I didn't even know about and,
0: and had to to learn about. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating. I had never heard of that either. So thank you for educating me about that. Yeah, There's just these things that you wouldn't realize unless you're moving around the world in a body that the spaces are not designed for typically because we live in such a exclusionary culture that just doesn't hasn't gotten with the times or at least you know not most places have but i think it's really cool to see like i was looking at the map on ample and seeing all the little dots of oh here's places that have been reviewed and a lot of those places are actually good you know that have five star ratings or whatever so
1: It's been incredibly heartening for me to see the reviews roll in and to see these, because there's, there's reviews all around the world and to see reviews roll in, in places where I might not expect them to, you know, have the most inclusive attitudes has been really heartening for me. One of the funniest reviews I've seen is a review of a DMV in New Hampshire, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, it totally makes sense. They were talking about the seats because the DMV is a place you have to sit for a very
0: long time. Right. You have to wait for hours usually.
1: Yeah, totally. So it it makes total sense that someone would want to be saying like, hey, I'm in New Hampshire. This DMV is one that has chairs without, you know, without arms on it. And so, yeah.
0: That is really cool. Like how how have you grown it and how has, you know, it sounds like it's starting to now get beyond just like the community of people, you know, where it's a lot of people, just random people around the world are finding it and getting on it, which is so exciting.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, the first, so I kind of started it and then I picked up this volunteer team around me. So one of my best friends who identifies as trans came on and they said to me, like, I have some of the same anxieties about going to doctors. And since then I've actually gone to the doctor with him and I mean, it's, it's been wild. They would call him by his birth, his dead name, basically. And, you know, because he hadn't legally changed it. And he would just say, oh, it's too much effort to try to like educate this person in the doctor's office that I don't actually use this name. And so I just answer to it. And so, you know, we were realizing that trans people actually faced some of the same problems that fat people did. And we know that from, you know, intersectional politics that when people have identities that overlap, they experience different things. So we know that, you know, a, a black fat woman is not going to have the same experience as a white fat woman. And so at that time we kind of realized, Hey, we want to expand this to a couple different identities. We want to make sure that you can review from these different identities and gather information from a more intersectional perspective. And so we kind of came on to do that together. And then we got a couple other volunteers and, and the weekend that we launched some of the, all of the first reviews were from people I didn't know. And so that, yeah, it was just a wild, wild, Wild experience, and then one of the the very first weekend we launched, we saw a review come in from Carissa Enneking, a Fat Girl oh. Flow. Yeah, <laughs> you know from and she's in she's in Kansas, right. and so we're like, wow, the first reviews like they weren't even in Portland; they were in Kansas and <laughs> Missouri and stuff like that. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a really cool experience. So yeah, the word got out. It sounds like, and it, it yeah seems like it. You know, it's something that people really need. There's a huge need for it, which probably speaks to why it's grown so fast.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there there were other resources that existed that are similar to this before it, like Fat Friendly Docs was a project that, that's that been around for a while. And I have a lot of respect for the people who started that project and and maintained that project. But I, I personally felt like we could use some more modern technologies to make it a more streamlined experience for people. So, you know, we make it look a lot like Yelp. Um, it, you know, it's the same process where you go on and you search for businesses and then it brings up a business profile. You can see the reviews and you can see the ratings and then you can make a review yourself. And so I thought that we could really benefit from kind of making it in this format that's very easy to keep the information up to date and fresh. Like if, say, a doctor's been reviewed in 2017 and it was kind of a so-so review, and then you go to them because you feel like that's maybe the best lead that you can find, and they've improved their attitude. And so you can go and you can make a review now and say, well, I went to this doctor and they were actually really... Great. I, they treated me with a lot of respect and so the review process really lends itself well to keeping really up-to-date information.
0: Totally. And I love the like the technology of it where you can just let it search by location too, so you can see all the stuff around you, which I feel like was missing from a lot of the the previous resources or it was much more static like okay, you know, I have yes, to like yeah. put in what city I'm in and then search from like a limited array. And with this it's sort of the opportunity for it to just keep growing and expanding and geolocate you wherever you are is really exciting.
1: Yeah. I like that also because I I like to think about how, you know, people travel. So if you are visiting another city and, you know, you want to get your haircut because you're there for two weeks, you can kind of use this map, use this tool for anywhere that you're at.
0: Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Because the reality is people move around (laughs) like we're not just going to stay in one place. Yeah, absolutely. And also I love how you talk about that ample is activism. This process of like reviewing is actually a form of activism because people can contribute their lived experiences and use that to help other people. Just such a cool idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If if you feel like going to a rally isn't going to be your speed, then I think being able to contribute to this database, it really helps a lot of people out when you put in a review in your area. How do people do that?
0: How can they submit reviews?
1: Yeah, so they go on and they, f- they use our search bar to find the business. Uh, we use Google Places API right now to get all of the business information in the world. So if the business is a Google business, we'll, we'll return it to you and it'll, it'll show up. And then you go to that profile on Ample, like Yelp. And we have the photo of it. There's a big old button that says Add a review. And you click on it, and then the way that we currently collect reviews is we ask you to review, give a star rating from four different perspectives. We ask you to rate it on how weight inclusive or size inclusive it is, how inclusive towards trans people or LGBTQIA people, people on that spectrum how inclusive towards people with disabilities and how inclusive they are towards people of color. And so perhaps you only have the perspective of a large bodied person and you want to just rate that. That's totally fine. You can leave the rest blank. And um, then you can also have the opportunity to write a narrative review. So that would be like, I went into this doctor and he weighed me and even though I didn't want to be. So that's kind of the place that you can say positive or negative, your story. So we collect that star rating and that narrative on the businesses.
0: It's so interesting to read through it too, because I feel like there's just these little snapshots of like how people experience weight stigma in the world or other forms of stigma and also snapshots of how people can do better. The sort of surprising experiences that people have where they're like, I just wandered into this coffee shop and it was actually amazing, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that about it. It's, we really, we try to frame it as an educational tool. We don't want to think of it as a way to bash businesses or spread a lot of negativity, we really would prefer to think about it as a tool for education. And so if a business gets a bad review, hopefully they would see that as an opportunity to learn a little bit and to make some changes. Like for instance, one of my favorite coffee shops in Portland that's right by my house is is a wonderful coffee shop. But the reality is that it's just not very physically accessible for people with disabilities and for r- larger bodied people. And so, you know, even there's only a few places that I can sit when I go there. And if I had any mobility problems, that would be really greatly reduced. And I go there because I love the people who run it, and it's right by my house. And so I find myself there. But I've had to give it a pretty so-so review because, you know, the reality is that it's it's really not that accessible for people. And I, I think, that hopefully one day soon I'll get up the courage to tell these incredibly kind people but to some to some extent it's just a little bit because of the space that they have but then there's other places where I've just been so pleasantly surprised that the space is so accessible
0: yeah it's interesting too cuz i think like a lot of people who are well intentioned and maybe just kind of making do with what like space that they have wouldn't necessarily recognize accessibility issues as a problem or even necessarily be able to do too much about it, you know, depending on what the space is. But I think it's just like good to know, you know, and and maybe educates them on like if they ever move or if they do a renovation or whatever it is, like think about this, you know.
1: Yeah. And one thing I've told other businesses is a big part of it is just awareness that you have some limitations. So if you can kind of reserve one little space and make sure that there's an armless chair there and that there, there's wide aisles, if there's if you can make some spots of your business accessible, even if you can't change the fact that there's a huge flight of stairs going up to the rest of the part of the cafe, you can do something maybe in this one little spot in this one corner and then try to keep that place open and just try to make sure that your employees are aware of a problem and that there's limitations of your space. And I think a little bit of awareness and compassion from
0: employees can go a long way. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that's really the key. It's like awareness and compassion because I think living in diet culture, the narrative is just like you said, you know, larger body people are just a thin person like trapped in this body waiting to get out or whatever. Yeah. And so larger bodies are not considered in designing spaces because... It's just like, well, that's a temporary passing thing or something. Nobody really wants to be larger bodied. So everybody, the default is thin, you know, which is just bullshit. And it's not true. Size diversity is a real thing, just like every other form of human diversity. And I think it's just not recognized as such because we live in this culture that's so shaming of, I mean, really shaming of lots of different aspects of human diversity. But diet culture specifically really is down on larger bodies and so doesn't doesn't make space for that, doesn't have that compassion. But I think people who know better can do better.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I, I think that whenever I try to bring it up with businesses, I almost always experience them to have a really positive attitude about it. I think everybody knows a larger body person and everybody has someone in their life, probably, you know, an aunt or an uncle, even if, even if they don't have friends. And I think that when it's brought up, most businesses can see that it's a problem. And, and most businesses have a positive reaction and want to make a positive change. Every now and then I do see pushback about, you know, I just can't do this because of my space and like this and that. And I try to be empathetic because I've been a small business owner, I've actually owned a restaurant and it's, it can be really hard to make changes when you're cash strapped. But I think there are a few small changes that you can make if you're cash strapped just to have a couple chairs without arms. And even if for some reason you can't have that out in the space, you can have it in the back and you can make sure that the wait staff knows that it's okay to ask somebody, hey, if this chair isn't comfortable for you, we can get a different chair for you. We have something in the back, stuff like that. When I've been met with a little bit of resistance about, what chairs have to be where?
0: Yeah, that's interesting, too, to just think about like small changes and availability of some options, and not not that it has to be like every single chair in the restaurant is now armless and of a certain size and capacity, but at least a few options.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I personally feel like it's, <laughs> incremental change is is sometimes okay. I think that we can start to make small changes. And then, you know, like you said, when a person gets a new space, then they're probably going to think twice about some of the decisions that they make in that space next time around.
0: Yeah. And I think as much as we want radical change, and I really wish that everything could just be different overnight, I feel like the realities of Life and of like logistics of things, you know, the way that businesses are set up, the way that buildings are set up and spaces are set up now, it just can't happen overnight. So it will inevitably be a slow process. But I think the more people can just wake up to this, and it's so cool that you have this tool which is educational on many levels. It's educational for the purposes of people who are using the spaces or services to educate themselves about what's going to be accommodating for them but then also it's educational to business owners and just making people more aware that this is a thing that needs to be considered.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was really my dream. I I feel like sometimes review platforms can can be hard because <laughs> they, you know, maybe you've experienced that fear, you know, because you obviously own a bit, own and run your practice and the the fear of the review platform as A bashing thing. Like I'm going to be bashed online and then I'm I'm not going to be able to get clients. And I'm very hyper aware of that. Again, having owned a restaurant where you live and die by reviews. So I really am hoping to set a tone with this that even if there's negative reviews that are left, because there's absolutely a place for negative reviews, that we can kind of keep it a little less
0: bashy and a little bit more educational. (laughs) And constructive too. Yeah. Exactly. That's
1: the word I'm (laughs) looking for. Constructive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Cause like that's, I mean, ultimately the goal isn't to tear down small businesses. It's to help them do better. And I think that's what we all want really.
1: Yeah. I was hanging out with Reagan Chastain when she came to Portland and she's a, another friend of the app and we were out to dinner and she said like, I was out with a group and we were at a restaurant and I asked the waiter, you know, do you have another chair for me? And and she's very comfortable with being outspoken about it. And she said, like, why would I have an angry reaction to that person? I need, you know, I have a thankful reaction that that person was kind to me and they found me something else. And from here on out, they'll have a positive experience doing that for people. And hopefully we'll be able to do that for other customers who might not be able to ask and stuff like that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true because it's it takes a lot to ask. And even to sort of conceive of yourself as someone who needs and is deserving of accommodations for your body is like a big leap for people who are in that self-loathing space of like, my body's wrong and it's my responsibility to fix it. You know, all that stuff that diet culture has fed us. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that culture in general has fed like to trans people, too, for example. I think the idea of of being really self-affirming and and advocating for yourself takes a certain level of self-acceptance to start with.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it takes practice, too, because as you do it once, it becomes a lot more comfortable to say, ah, do you have something else? I, or even now I'm more comfortable switching out chairs. And even when I'm out with a group of thin people and just and just saying like, that chair doesn't work for me. I need this other chair. And it becomes more comfortable. And I think the reality is that people want to, a lot of people do want to do good and they want you to be comfortable and they want you to be there with them. And they're willing to make the changes. if If you can ask in some way.
0: Right. And hopefully the ample, just the existence of it and the fact that people are reviewing spaces and stuff will start to make asking more of a commonplace thing, Make like normalize that.
1: Absolutely. And with ample, maybe you just go to the coffee shop that has all of the variety of chairs instead, because you know, and that's a powerful thing. You know, a lot of people don't want to be met with a lot of resistance all the time Or people in larger bodies are met with resistance as they move through the world constantly. So one thing that's really nice is just being able to look up and say, hey, this is a coffee shop that I think I'm going to have no trouble being in. Like I can see, like I see someone uploaded a photo of the chair situation. And I see that some super fat person has said that this works for even super fats. So I hope that, We can avoid some of the discomfort to begin with, do some education of the spaces that need improvement, and empower people to ask for what they need and be comfortable taking up that space
0: because they deserve it. It's their right. Oh, yes. I love it. (laughs) It's so amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Alyssa, for sharing your story and for telling us about this app and for doing this. I feel like it's such a much needed project for this culture. Thank you. Tell us where people can learn more about you and and the app and get on it.
1: Yeah. So the app is at isitample.com. It's a web application. Sometimes people get a little bit confused about that app wording. It's it's a website. It looks great on your mobile phone if you'd like to view it in the browser on your mobile phone or on desktop or whatever. And so yeah, it's isitample.com that you can go and check it out. We've got a blog. We've got resources. We do things for business owners where you can claim your business and take our pledge of inclusivity, which will get you on that front page map and put a little badge up on your profile. That's really cute. And it allows you to upload a personal statement about your business philosophy. So people use that to say, I'm a health at every size practitioner, or my building has two stairs going up to it, but I'm working on getting a ramp. But people use that space for all different kinds of things. So if you're a business owner, and you're interested in claiming your business, you can go on and do that on, on Ample. I think it should be fairly straightforward. We also have a blog about it. And we have it in our frequently asked questions. And there's ways to volunteer. We're a total volunteer shop. Uh, it's an open source project, with me, which means all the code is available online. We believe in transparency and you know including other programmers who want to work on it. And so if you want to volunteer or if you want to go on and just claim your business or make a review, that's awesome. All the the reviews that we can get is really the best, the what we need.
0: And I'm curious too about the amplified part of it. Can you tell us what that is?
1: Yeah. So we kind of acknowledged early on that not everyone has enough time to sit down and write out a review because it does take you know a moment to write out your narrative. And so And we also saw that what happens a lot is, say, with like Facebook, with Facebook groups, a lot of members of the fat community or the body positive community, trans community are members of groups that are kind of specific to that topic. And a lot of times the groups serve as recommendations for things. So I I am involved in a Portland health at every size Facebook group and I'm constantly seeing questions asked and answered about what is good for larger bodies for all different types of things. And so what I wanted to do was be able to create kind of an ample super user, someone who wants to put a little bit more skin in the game and get involved on a little bit of a higher level and they have privileges to where they can go on to a business profile and instead of putting in that first hand review, they're able to do what's called amplify it. They click a button and what it does is it puts it on that front page map and it puts it higher in the search results for that area. And we make it clear that this isn't a firsthand review. This is just kind of a hot lead, like someone in the community who is fat positive or body positive and understands the idea of inclusivity, like they have marked this space and they've heard that this space is a good space and they're marking it for you to kind of try out. And then hopefully people will come back and make a firsthand review, but that's a way that we can get people more involved in their area. So if if you feel like you see a lot of recommendations and you want to kind of be involved on the greater on that greater level building up your geographical location you can become an amplifier it's very easy to do you send us an email and we turn on the privileges for you and we send you information about what it means and so there's a little small short process for becoming an amplifier and then when you do that you'll always see like a big blue button in addition to the right of review that says amplify. And then on the front page, you'll see that some businesses say this business hasn't been reviewed, it's been amplified, which means a trusted super user recommends it.
0: That's so cool because I, I feel like I always am seeing or like in the groups that I manage, like the Facebook groups for my online courses and stuff, you know, people are always asking for recommendations and then people answer them. And I've always wanted to sort of create a master resource list for those things. And it just like gets buried so quickly, you know, especially in like Facebook groups, it just churns and then it's hard to search. The search bar isn't always effective. So it's nice to have that have that option of like people who see a lot of reviews and recommendations of businesses to be able to go in and just like put a pin in it and kind of like mark it down on the app.
1: Yeah, that was exactly our hope. It's like sometimes all of those things, they get kind of locked into these little littler groups. The whole goal of Ample is to kind of bring that information to the surface for everyone to see and for everyone to access.
0: Oh, that's so great. I love it. I love what you're doing. So we'll put links to that in the show notes so that people can find you. And it's isitample.com, right? Is the website.
1: Yeah, isitample.com. Awesome.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Alyssa. It's a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Alyssa Sobo for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message, which, let's be real, is everyone, by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us up higher in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet messages and keep rising up in the health category. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, go to christyharrison.com 187. That's christyharrison.com slash 187. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by Nurex. Imagine ordering and chatting with doctors all online and getting birth control delivered right to your door every month. Enter Nurex, a company that's here to make getting birth control easier. Nurex means fewer doctor visits, skipping pharmacy lines, and automatic refills that you don't even have to think about. Plus, it's the most affordable option out there without insurance and could even be free with insurance. Go to nurex.com slash food psych for a $20 credit. That's n-u-r-x dot com slash f-o-o-d-p-s-y-c-h. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Program's team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chui, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watassic, and our transcript assistant, Kiera McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Mm-hmm.